Uber and Lyft drivers in this state will continue to be treated as independent contractors, though voters overwhelming, overwhelmingly approved Proposition 22. It does exempt gig economy companies from laws that would have forced them to employ drivers and pay for health care and other benefits. Companies like Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash have spent more than $200 million in support of that measure. It's considered the most expensive in California history. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 18 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan here with Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And uh, to help us conduct a postmortem on the election and ask that critical question of what comes next, we're joined by Marshall Steinbaum, who's an assistant professor of economics at the University of Utah. Um, but before we get into those big questions, Boys, can we not all agree that the revolution has come and, and you know, the endless brunch is on me. <laughs> I actually, I actually never, I, I never stopped having brunch. I don't know about all these other people who uh, felt the need to <laughs> protest. I, I've just been drinking my way through the Trump administration. Yeah. Bottomless, mimosas. bottomless mimosa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God, I've, I, I've seen so many people like, it's like, how do we how do we parody that resist mindset when they lean so far into it? I've seen so many people just honestly being like, I'm so excited for the next four years to talk about movies and culture and TV and pets and never think about the president ever again. Yeah, I saw, yeah or that racism has ended. And um, there's this one thing that went around. It was like, uh, America just got a massive debuff and now racism is over. I saw and this sentiment I saw outside too in the streets a little bit that like now it's over you know now we just go back to regular racism. (laughs) (laughs) Hyper racism is done. Yeah you know in the aftermath of it though is like there's been the horrible you know cabinet picks that have been floating up every now and then talks of you know the transition teams that are going to be coming up and the hiring of you know executives from various industries. And maybe like one place to look at for what happens next is like, I don't know what, like, do we have an idea of Joe Biden's policies, like real actual beliefs in these various fields? Or are we going to have to rely on who he hires and, ha- and who's going to like guide the, the fleshing out of the administrative state? I think it matters a great deal who is put in key positions in the executive branch, especially since it seems like it's unlikely that, uh, Uh, Democrats will gain a majority in the Senate, the sort of legislative um, uh, angle to influencing the administration will be less. I mean, that that certainly matters, but the administration is going to be uh, as attuned to uh, doing what Mitch McConnell wants, it seems, as they will to doing what Democrats in the Senate want. And then, you know, I think the House Democrats have not really acquitted themselves all that well in the last Congress. They were enabled, I think, by the sole focus on Trump to not really set up any dynamic for a next Democratic administration, in a, with a couple of important exceptions, which I hope uh, we can get to around antitrust and labor policy. Um, you know, there's not, it doesn't really feel like there's going to be a strong 
policy push from House Democrats toward the administration. Um, so I think it is going to come down to essentially intra-democratic coalition negotiations and infighting that plays out among the various agencies and personnel of a Biden administration. Um, and to be totally honest, that looks really bad right now from a left perspective. I think there's a, some delusion that um, the left will be represented, if not in a, in a prime position, that at least they will have a voice at the table um, in a Biden administration in a way that wasn't there in the Obama administration until maybe the end. Um, and that is not the case. Uh, the people that are being pointed to as representatives of a progressive interest that are set for high appointments um, under the Biden administration are not people who should be considered allies of, of the left by any stretch of the imagination, I mean, for better or worse. You know, basically, the left is exactly where it is, uh, or where it was at the end, I mean, throughout the Obama administration, but particularly at the end of it, where, you know, they're sort of like, well, now is our chance to do something before we're out of power. But, um, you know, all of the people who would represent our interests are outside, you know, and kind of banging on the door. And the people who actually get to make the decisions are the people who've been there forever. Um, and it's going to be the same people as it was last time. Uh, so, so that's concerning. Um, I would say that doesn't mean there's no hope or no pur purpose in uh, engaging with a federal administration or, or pushing forward uh, some of the demands that were made uh, as part of, say, the primary campaign. Um, I think, you know, you asked the question of like, does Biden have any beliefs or does he have any platform that he's bringing into office? I also think that's not the case. So we, we don't have that from uh, the uh, House Democrats. And we don't really have that from a presidential campaign. I would say kind of, I mean, in some ways you could see this as a culmination of a long process whereby uh, popular politics is steadily denuded of any content, uh, you know, but to have a president who's really entering office kind of having gone from the beginning of the campaign to the end of it without articulating a particular rationale for his election other than the defeat of the incumbent uh, mean, you know, that, that you know, so that, that's kind of sobering when you think about what it says about democracy, but it does open some opportunities because much as, you know, Biden certainly stood for the defeat of the left in the Democratic primary, um, I think we've seen just in the last few days since it became clear he was going to win that it, nobody feels that the primary really resolved these questions within the party. Right. And so the fact that um, he's not really committed to any one positive platform on his own right does mean that there may be a, an opening on some issues. So I think, you know, I think we'll talk about labor policy federal labor policy in particular, you know, there's mm -hmm. definitely going to be a, a strong push to kind of compromise with the gig companies at the federal level. But no, like that's going to kind of come out of nowhere politically in that uh, there's not, uh, you know, that, that 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 has been pushed to, to date so far without any popular support within the Democratic Party's coalition. And so it's not, you know, there's, there's certainly powerful interests that would like to see that uh, compromise, or I, was, I would say sellout take place. Um, you know, that's, uh, it's also possible that uh, a labor interest within the party will prevent it from happening. So it's not, uh, it's not a done deal, I would say. 
the like supporters of of Biden's campaign. I mean, what what few like really full throated supporters there there were, you know, would would famously keep saying he has the most progressive policy platform of any Democrat mm. ever. Um, and Biden yeah. would make these like uh, offhand remarks, being you know saying stuff like I'm I'm going to be the most pro union president that's that's ever existed. Mm. But then when you actually look at the policies, uh, the, the there, there's really so little of substance there. And, and I think you're dead on, Marshall, that the, uh, his, his campaign was really a, a negative campaign. It was a campaign against Trump and for uh, the soul of America, whatever that means, which mainly means this idea of like bringing back civility and, and honor to the office of the president. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, be, because of that sort of uh, vacancy in terms of the campaign's own platform, that means that the administration is sort of a playground for all of the many conflicting priorities and politics that have already that have been playing out to date um, in in you know broadly speaking the Democratic political coalition. Uh, you know, so when he says he's going to be the most pro-union president. Like in the last Congress, you know, what, what exactly does that mean? Um, you know, labor had a, a bill that got passed through the House in the last Congress or the current Congress, I should say, um, that is good and is basically a labor wish list. Um, and so one this is the thing that, pro act, right? Yes, the pro act. Uh, mm-hmm. one, th- one thing that being the most pro union president might mean is saying that to the extent that it's possible for the administration to adopt the policy of the PRO Act without getting it passed, so this is presuming it doesn't pass the Senate in the next uh, in the next session, you know, it's still possible for the uh, uh, federal apparatus to kind of do their best within the broad direction that the PRO Act laid out. So what that would mean that is most relevant to me in particular is the employment status for gig economy workers, um, also a federal $15 minimum wage and many other uh, uh, favorable uh, pro-union policies. On the other hand, there's going to be an element of labor that, as I was alluding to earlier, uh, essentially proposes compromise with the gig economy companies that would surrender employment status in exchange for basically what the companies put on the ballot in California for Prop 22. So this is what they call portable benefits, um, uh, where the company at its discretion kind of deposits some money into a worker fund. Um, that's certainly not what the workers would be entitled to if they got, for example, health insurance from uh, from their employers or, uh, or had a minimum wage or other labor protections. Um, that there, so in the Obama administration, there was a the element in labor policy that proposed that what's called you know federal third category. So um, that means a, a legal labor status that is neither employment nor independent contractor, but rather basically what the gig economy currently is, which is you know, no protections mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, in exchange for you know some lower labor standards, um, you know, in, in the form right. of these portable benefits, like completely at the discretion of the boss. Um, that. Uh, so some unions are basically going to say, we'll take that deal in exchange for paper membership. That is right. gig economy companies or gig economy workers will be nominally represented by uh, some union and some sort of negotiation that doesn't include bargaining over wages um, and doesn't include any real accountability to the workers mm-hmm. that uh, are, are nominally being represented in that negotiation. So there's no real oppositional you know, labor versus employers uh, context the way that, that we conceive there to be in 
in organized uh, labor. Um, so some unions are going to say, we'll take that because we'll take the dues and we'll take the you know paper enrollment, people who are, are we can say are members of this union. Um, and in exchange, you know, instead of actually having to fight with these companies, they'll pat us on the head and, you know, hold our hand as we enter the boardroom. Um, that's going to be attractive to a lot of people in, uh, in certain parts of organized labor. I'm just imagining the signing ceremony for federal third category that just passed Congress with bipartisan majorities in both houses. He says, I'm the most pro-union president and I'm signing this, which is the biggest expansion of uh, the share of the workforce that's represented by a union since the 1930s. So, you know, that that's something that is very much on the table and could happen. Right. Uh, that fact that he said he's the most pro-union president and obviously for pretty clear reasons, labor was united behind the, mm-hmm. at least on official national organizations of, of, uh, of labor unions were reunited behind the election of uh, Joe Biden, um, you know, that doesn't at all mean that workers' interests will actually be served by, uh, that, by that administration. Earlier today, you made this point online about how the Proposition 22, the federal third, you know, category, the sectoral bargaining, all of these end up in one way a return to the New Deal, which is, you know, enshrined as as the massive, you know, victory for labor, advancement of labor's um, rights or labor rights for workers, right? But at the same time, like it was done with like the explicit exclusion of women and occupations that were dominated by, you know, black and brown workers, right? So that the rest of the workforce would be able to get minimum standards. And with the return of you know, profit, with the return of that same sort of, you know, impetus to sell out the workforce, you know, do you think that there's been maybe not more momentum, but like the, that these ideas are maybe they're already held, like the idea that if you just sacrifice some of the workers for the majority of them having their workplace conditions improved, then that's fine. Because it seems to me like I was surprised with, and some pe- some people have talked a bit about, you know, I think uh, Josh Edelson at um, Bloomberg and Kate Unger at New York Times talked a bit about how there was not as much opposition to Proposition 22 in California as uh, they as was expected at the time by yes on 22 or by you know advocates also not not in the sense that like the workers weren't rising up because they did amazing you know organizing but that there was discord among the unions of what to do in the lead up to AB5 and then afterwards and that ended up hurting the campaign against um, prop 22 and i you know when we see joe biden when we see the administration talk about it going to be a pro union organization and as you talked about this doesn't necessarily advance workers interests are we going to see these sort of conflicts magnified at the national scale you know people are just going to be left behind you covered a lot there. I want to highlight this issue of uh, exclusion of women and minority-dominated occupations from the protections of federal labor law because you know, this has been now a sort of trendy subject of scholarship, which is fine because it's certainly true as a historical matter um, and as a kind of guidepost and totem in the current debate over um, how to regulate the labor market, the intersection of uh, race and class in economic policymaking, all of these major issues that are obviously of of crucial importance um, in the current political context. You know, this idea that the extreme version of it, to my mind, and the most harmful version of it 
is embodied in Hillary Clinton's statement that breaking up the banks won't solve racism. The implication being that economic justice actually interferes with racial justice, um, and a left economic program is actually bad for uh, racial equality. And I think that is the absolute death of left politics, especially in the United States, where we've never had a uh, a successful progressive movement that wasn't multiracial. I am just uh, aghast whenever I, I... hear anything like that statement. Um, And we're seeing that statement now um, from exactly the same people who've been pointing to the New Deal Mm -hmm. sellout as the lesson of how uh, economic, you know, how, how a progressive economic program interferes with racial equality, in fact, is, is bad for racial equality. First of all, I, so that that extreme interpretation of the New Deal, I don't agree with as an interpretation of the New Deal. Um, that is, it's a, it's a correct interpretation of the political horse trading that uh, gave rise to the Fair Labor Standards Act and the federal minimum wage, not including a lot of ac- occupations that were dominated by uh, women uh, and, and minorities. Um, it's just not true that the New Deal overall, uh, you know, served the aim of racial of, of economic justice at the expense of racial justice. That is a, an overinterpretation of the New Deal. Mm-hmm. Um, the same people who've been making that exact overinterpretation are now putting this essentially the exact same thing as the Fair Labor Standard Act sellout on the table mm-hmm. vis-a-vis federal third category uh, by nationalizing the result of Prop 22. So they want to take these gig economy occupations and essentially exclude them from federal uh, labor protections. Um, and those occupations are dominated by exactly the same demographic groups that uh, were excluded from the uh, uh, New Deal uh, settlement, or at least the Fair Labor Standards Act. You know, so it's just an, a supreme act of uh, cynicism uh, that I think needs to be called out and pointed out uh, at every uh, available opportunity. You know, so the concern is, are we going to see, you know, like you said, they're advancing that sort of, you know, deeply hypocritical and cynical you know, move by trying to uh, advance, you know, third worker category, which is where it's like it's supposed to be a chimera of um, employee and independent contractor status uh, for listeners who may not know, and also sectoral bargaining, which as you, for for listeners also, that's um, portable benefits. So you don't really get the full amount of uh, rights or protections or benefits that you might in the workforce, but the idea is that you're supposed to get what a core enough, uh, a small core that will allow you to collectively bargain ostensibly, um, but not so much that you actually get control over wages, get control over labor conditions. What is it that is guiding the proliferation of this at the national stage? Is it a testament to how powerful the companies are? Is it a testament to like the underlying ruling ideology where maybe some people do believe what Hillary Clinton believes, which is that, you know, racial justice and economic justice are not interfere with one another? Or is it um, a sort of disconnect from what workers may actually need? That's well, I, I would say it's, it's all of those things. Um, so yeah. this idea that like, for example, uh, uh, federal third category plus sectoral bargaining. So we should come back in a second to what sectoral bargaining actually is. Um, I, th- th- but the settlement that involves, let's say, not non-employment status or third category, so what they've called independent worker, uh, portable benefits that are less valuable than statutory labor protections for employees, um, plus uh, uh, nominal representation in a non-National Labor Relations Act union. So that I'll say that's what sectoral bargaining is for the moment. We should talk about where that stands in terms of uh, labor policy. Um, you know, there's a claim that the, all of those things are sort of better than the status quo for gig workers, and so it's worth uh, kind of taking the, the 
the compromise, the small step up at the expense of sacrificing uh, the more ambitious labor protections embodied in California's AB5. Um, so you can see exactly the sort of same people. Let's let's place Hillary Clinton in the role of uh, a stand-in for that that mindset. At the same time, as she would say something like breaking up the banks doesn't solve racism, she would also say that you know bar- uh, uh, negotiating on the inside, reaching a compromise that's uh, amenable to all parties, um, is a better mode of politics than outside agitation and and swinging for the fences with the possibility that you might lose. There's a strong uh, kind of self-regarding ideology within the Democratic Party affiliated elites that says, you know, we're the serious deal makers at the table. So if an issue like employment status comes across the table as a matter of federal policy, the inclination is to sort of find the common ground and come up with a solution that everybody can live with. So you said before that there's uh, that there was a great deal of disagreement among labor interests in California over AB5, over, over how to fight Prop 22. That That is absolutely right. You know, this class of person would see that as, oh, the kind of radicals got a hold of the debate and pushed too far to have this conversation. That was a mistake. We can all agree it was a mistake having seen Prop 22 play out. You know, now let's get the adults in the room to uh, negotiate a compromise so that we don't have to have this, uh, you know, wild swing back and forth in terms of what the policy is and these very bloody, you know, politically bloody fights out in the streets at the voting booth, we'll just sort of come up with our backroom uh, compromise, and then that'll, in the sort of worst case scenario, pass that through Congress with a bipartisan majority, you know, and then it's like, well, the people never really got a chance to debate that issue, or and, you know, social movements were never really uh, part of the decision-making process. So, uh, you know, all of this speaks to, I would say, uh, a variety of pathologies that plague uh, sort of elite centrist Dem uh, policy formulation, and I think we're going to see, you know, see, see a lot of that uh, in labor policy, but, you know, in, in other areas as well. Yeah, I mean, this ideology that, like, the, the answer is found in the synthesis, right? It's found somewhere in the in the middle. Uh, it has this view of a kind of symmetry of power as well, yep. right? That, like, labor and capital can come to the bargaining table, and they ha- are coming in, in the, at, with the same amount of power and the, in the mm-hmm. same position, and then, you know, they'll, they'll work out a deal. But that's clearly not the case. I mean, we can, only, we can see that playing out. Um, in a very material way, just with Prop 22, right? I mean, looking at the gig economy kind of, um, you know, coalition spent over $200 million um, on that on that proposition, which, you know, record-breaking amount of money spent on a state proposition um, compared to the kind of grassroots organizing that spent um, quite literally a fraction of that um, amount of money and, and, and really had to rely on that kind of grassroots organizing. Um, you can also see it in, you know, you're talking about this kind of creation of this third category, right? Somewhere between uh, a full-time actual worker and somewhere between a kind of independent contractor, right? And, and that, um, that, that idea of proposing this kind of new intermediary category or intermediate category of protection comes about from or was at least uh, you know, a, a proponent of that was Seth Harris, who was an acting Secretary of Labor during the Obama administration. Um, Lyft cited a paper that Seth Harris wrote about this intermediary category in their press release celebrating Prop 22. Uh, you can also see it in the 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 staid neutrality of Governor Gavin, Gavin Newsom. 
governor of California who uh, stayed neutral on Prop 22, didn't really take a side. You know, if he could have voted, maybe he would have. Uh, you know, yes or no, that's too extreme, too <laughs> radical, maybe. Um, but, you know, he, he wants to, for him, he wanted to see a deal that would protect uh, as he put it, quote, flexibility and innovation in ride hailing, while also providing the industry drivers, quote, a voice uh, at work. That's very important. That voice at work, that is getting to the sectoral bargaining thing. That's that's mm-hmm. yeah. the code word for the non-National Labor Relations Act quasi-pseudo-union the sort of moderates at the table want to uh, put forward as being the concession that they, I mean, this you know, really that suggestion is coming from the gig companies. So like they have touted right. it in their own press release. In some ways, they're they're stepping on their own message there because they would want that to appear to come from the workers and then grant that as a concession. So the idea that it's like they're putting forward the thing that you're then supposed to consider to be peace that we got out of the negotiation that was like something that workers want one, no, it's not something that workers want. It's something that the gig economy people suggested and that sellout um, elected officials decided was the fig leaf that they needed to uh, sell out their um, their constituency. You know, it's just interesting in hearing you you describe that. Uh, you know, so you referred earlier to my submission to the California Future of Work Commission. Um, that commission was really the governor of California's attempt to solve this problem without that what has now happened, you know, he wanted to come up with this compromise that I'm now saying is going to be mooted on the federal level. He wanted that to, you know, come out of the laboratory of California. I'm pretty sure. I mean, I'm, you know, I don't know this for certain, but I would guess that the impetus there is to see that, um, you know, come out of California and then that be the model for uh, that's taken up nationally. Now what's come out of California is Prop 22. And you see all the gig economy executives saying that's the thing that we want to be taken nationally. Um, mm-hmm. So it could be that, you know, this idea that you, that you sort of like, uh, tack on sectoral bargaining or, so, you know, some fig leaf of worker representation and worker voice and then say, oh, yes, you know, now we have reached the kind of compromise that will solve the problem of the gig economy. You know, that, that I would say that uh, is still very strongly on the table as as uh, as where this all is going to go. And I mean, it's just, you know, when you think about the Trump administration and Republicans more generally, how they treat labor policy, it's like, you know, workers get screwed. There's no compromise. There's no uh, uh, discussion about that. Okay, we just voted out the Trump administration and brought in the Democrats and the self-described most pro-union president in uh, in history. Um, you know, no matter what happens, it is going to be a some form of compromise between employers and workers and probably not one to workers' benefit. So that, I think, embodies the asymmetry that is inherent in our political system and the way in which it represents um, the interests of the American people. And I think most of the American people depend on their work for their living. You've got one party that doesn't take their uh, welfare into account at all. And then you've got another party that pretends to take their welfare into account, but isn't going to ever do anything other than sponsor a sort of elite compromise. At least that's that's its self-conception. Um, and you know, between those two things, this is a political system that has over decades dwindled the status of uh, workers in the workplace um, You know, to a very low level that I think has caused a lot of uh, grievance and political unrest and I think will cause more if this is where sort of elite, uh, high-minded, philanthropic funded opinion is going. I mean, building on that, and I think really just for the, for the listeners laying out um, the, you know, laying out the, the kind of battleground that we're now having to fight on with this passing of Proposition 22, which for me, 
you know, on election night, I, I was I was watching the the uh, report, the voting report, the poll reporting for Proposition Twenty Two, maybe closer than I was watching the Electoral College, right? <laughs> yeah, and, enjoy, yeah, enjoy, same, enjoy yeah. the club, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Progressively yeah. getting more and more enraged um, yeah, as yeah. I saw it, it, it losing in a landslide, right? Of like yeah. like a million over a million and a half votes, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and then going and standing out. It was it was raining where I was at, you know. And I was like, oh, this is just perfect. It's a dark and stormy night, and uh, we're we're facing hell. Um, but but there's a in a really good essay kind of laying out what happened and and, and what is now coming next. Um, in Jacobin by Alex Press. I just want to read a paragraph that she ends with um, where she says, quote, there is little organized opposition among elected officials to these executives intent to take their success in California and federalize it. And here she's talking about the CEOs of Uber, Lyft, and these gig economy companies. Um, These companies launched their offensive in Nancy Pelosi's own district, and the House leader didn't prioritize fighting them. While Joe Biden and Kamala Harris said they opposed Proposition 22, there's little evidence of Biden ever sticking his neck out to fight for workers' rights if it wasn't for a campaign photo op. And Harris has unprecedented ties to Silicon Valley. After all, such affinities run in her family. Tony West, her brother-in-law and a high-ranking official in the Obama administration, wrote the gig economy company's legal strategy for misclassification. And you know, so Tony West is the chief legal counsel for Uber. Um, and, and there's a lot of other aspects there that Alex didn't put in her article, uh, such as Anthony Fox, who is now at uh, Lyft, right? He was like transportation secretary under Obama. Uh, you know, Valerie Jarrett, who is a senior advisor for um, Obama, is also on the board of Lyft, right? And they've both held high profile fundraising uh, for Biden and for Harris. And so there, there's just all these connections that, that this administration is, you know, this incoming administration, the Biden-Harris administration is already coming in with deep ties, um, fiscally and familially, um, to, uh, to these companies. And so, you know, the, the question really comes, you know, what kind of opposition will there really be to a kind of federalized version of Proposition yeah. 22? Well, there's an easy answer to that, which I guess I, I haven't read the piece that you just quoted from Alex, um, but uh, she may not be aware of it. I don't mean that in a sort of didactic sense. The, the the national AFL is in general opposed to all of this. So, so you know, the the view among on the left of uh, the sort of labor establishment um, is generally negative towards uh, uh, the AFL, as I understand it, for good reason. I mean, there's a lot of things that are wrong with that, but they will not settle for non-employment status or I should say, uh, till now, maybe this will change. They will not settle for non-employment status for the most part, because that's what goes. That, that's what unlocks NLRA unionization. So uh, basically, this first of all, uh, you know, this is closing off a large and growing share of the labor market of the labor force from ever being organized in the way that pretty much every AFL union organizes workers. And there's a grave danger that uh, workers in this non-employed category will be introduced into workplaces that have traditionally been considered statutory employment um, and including workplaces that are not only statutory employees but also unionized so there's a great danger that if this is you know kind of where labor i mean this this is labor 
deregulation, like you could consider it to be regulating an unregulated sector, the gig economy. But the whole point of the gig economy is that they've managed to carve themselves out of existing labor regulations. And then obviously their game plan is to then have that take over. So that that is, you know, basically the outcome of Prop 22 is our way of regulating the labor market. And that is a much less pro-worker stance than uh, than the status quo. Um, so the AFL will oppose it. Now, it's a little hard to imagine them, certainly not right off the bat, going to war with the Biden administration. Um, but you know, the way this is going to play out to kind of circle back to the beginning of this conversation about uh, uh, appoint federal appointments um, and the use of executive power if there's not a, a congressional route uh, so there, the, there's only really a congr- I mean, we'll see what happens in the Senate, even even with the PRO Act. So suppose the Democrats did somehow take over the Senate. Um, you know, I, I would have put the PRO Act in the category of the card check the last time around. So that was this yeah. bill that passed the Congress between 2006 and 2008 overwhelmingly because a lot of people in red states, you know, could basically vote for it, knowing that uh, it would be vetoed or otherwise blocked um, and not become law. And then they suddenly, um, uh, you know, fell away from it when there was actually the strong possibility that Obama would pass it. And in fact, it's it's possible that, you know, Obama was perfectly happy to have it set up such that he didn't have to pass it or veto it, but rather it failed in the Congress. So I feel like that's what that's that's what's going to happen to the PRO Act, basically, no matter what happens to the Senate. It's not going to pass. So then what would pass Congress is going to be bad, I would guess. And so then the the kind of the way in which this compromise would be effectuated, if not that, and it's possibly going to be through that, is through dueling appointments in the Labor Department at the White House, in the National Labor Relations Board, potentially other aspects that I'm missing, where, you know, the I mean, the AFL will be consulted on the Biden administration's appointments mm-hmm. to the Labor Department. So there will definitely be a, uh, a jockeying over that. And the appointments will be important, but not dispositive in terms of uh, deciding how the outcome is. It's not like, you know, I, I would say Alex is correct that, you know, the overall uh, uh, posture of the Democratic Party's uh, leadership apparatus would make you think that like Prop 22 is just going to be how it is, you know, pretty much everyone in power supports it. Um, you know, they'll, uh, you know, certainly not really lift a political finger in order to block block that. And that's, I would say, it's not quite accurate that there is there's strong constituencies that uh, will not sit idly by while that happens. You know, when I was trying to look up some of the, maybe not coalitions, the right word, but groups that may or may not have taken action on Prop 22, you know, and Alex Peace, she talks about how it was in Pelosi's own district that Pelosi and Newsom have like a generational family ties that go back three generations, <laughs> as, as well as um, Brown. And uh, I think it's the Getty family, right? They're all oh, connected. You're talking about the, uh, the, well, yeah, we're not supposed to. <laughs> you know, uh, Kamala Harris's early political career was due to her liaison with Willie Brown. Yes. Right. Yeah. We're not allowed to talk about all these, no. all these families. Um, but I think it, I think it's interesting that, um, you know, like now the party is more or less dominated by like president in waiting, you know, Kamala, who's a San Francisco Democrat, Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, who's um, also San Francisco Democrat. Governor of the largest state, you know, San Francisco Democrat. Two of them are connected through political dynasties, and one of them is mentored by someone who was connected to one of the political dynasties. And they all share like a large group of the same donors, industry support, political connections that, in one way, oppose 
or frustrate the advance of labor um, because of the way those industries have thrived by exploiting maybe loopholes in labor or exploiting uh, the weak, this, uh, particular weakness of some US labor laws. So I'm, I'm curious if you think that from here, it has to be, you know, you've done work on the antitrust dimensions or of challenges that could be leveled against gig platforms, but also in general uh, to help uh, improve labor markets. Do you think that it, there needs to be a more focus on antitrust labor conditions or it needs to be done in conjunction with labor or that maybe people haven't given full appreciation of the ways antitrust can be used to help a labor battle. Yeah, so there's no avoiding the intersection of antitrust and labor when it comes to the gig economy. Uh, so it's not mm -hmm. just me, you know, kind of putting my uh, a hobby horse out there um, because in so far as there's a third category, uh, however it plays out, uh, the question is basically, will it be uh, uh, vulnerable to an antitrust challenge um, in that, you know, workers who uh, have collectively bargained outside the employment relationship have historically been uh, uh, targeted by antitrust. So this is, there's something in antitrust called the labor exemption that is designed to make it so that collective bargaining by unions is not prosecutable under the antitrust laws. Um, as you know, so that kind of developed, the labor exemption developed between the Clayton Act and the 1930s. As it has come to exist now, it is viewed to end at the border of statutory employment, which means that workers who are outside statutory employment, namely gig workers, are also not protected by the antitrust labor exemption. Um, so say Seattle tried to set up what was basically a non-employee uh, collective bargaining regime. So you could say that was sectoral bargaining for the taxi industry in Seattle or the ride sharing industry in Seattle. Um, and Uber went to war against that, brought an antitrust suit and basically won. They ended up settling it with the city in exchange for abandoning the collective bargaining regime and instead setting up a regulatory system like they have in New York City. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, so one question is just if somebody's going to come out there and say federal third category is going to involve sectoral bargaining as a fig leaf, then there has to be an answer to the antitrust suit question. You know, I presume in those circumstances, the companies would have gotten so much of what they wanted that they would give, you know, they would grant something that basically says we won't sue this thing um, under the antitrust laws because it is exactly what we want, a company union. Um, and uh, what that would mean is expanding the labor exemption of antitrust to cover non-employed workers, namely workers in the third category. Uh, so that, so that, that's the sense in which there's like no escaping the antitrust aspect here. What I have written about and what I think you're alluding to is the idea that the gig companies themselves, the platforms are antitrust violations. So rather than be the plaintiff, as they were in the Seattle case, suing, in that case, they were suing the city of Seattle, but basically the premise was our workers organizing together is a violation of the antitrust laws. It's a cartel. Um, mm -hmm. Instead, they are the violation of the antitrust laws because they're fixing prices all over the place among supposedly independent contractors. So, you know, they're they have wanted to essentially benefit from the economic power of employment where you can tell everybody what to do, including what prices to charge and which customers certain drivers are supposed to service. You know, all of that is essentially directing and controlling economic activity that is outside the boundary of the legal boundary of the firm. Um, and in the olden days, namely the 1950s through the 70s, antitrust used to be very concerned with that. And there are a lot of good cases that basically say that is illegal. If you're, it's a, you know, the, the premise is, if you are not an, a, a, an employee, if you are, quote, independent businessman, then you cannot be told what to do. And so all of these restraints 
uh, and and business models and uh, uh, tactics that the the more dominant company uses to control its non-employed independent businessmen, those are all illegal. If you want to control them, you have to employ them. And if you employ them, then you get all the benefits of employment. Uh, you know, you can be told what you do. It's an economically subservient position, but you get something in return, um, including the right to collectively bargain minimum wage and, and all of that. Um, so given, you know, the, the, so the gig economy firms are pressing forward with the non-employment model. They want the third category. Uh, uh, they got what they wanted in Prop 22. Uh, they will, you know, will, depending on what comes forward, they will grant something on antitrust that looks like uh, an expansion of the antitrust labor exemption. And then the question is, well, what about bringing an antitrust case against them? Because the whole premise of bringing such a case would be, if you win, or, or the, the threat of such a case is uh, uh, judgment under the Sherman Act for treble damages, under those circumstances, the companies would want to employ their workers. So rather than this, the battle that has been happening today, which is, you know, labor wants workers to be employed, platform wants workers not to be employed, and we'll fight that in whatever form we fight that, including Prop 22, a world where they're actually under antitrust threat through the control and direction of, uh, it, quote, independent businessmen who are not their employees, uh, then, then the platforms would want to employ. Then they're like, okay, well, this depends on us controlling the, the terms of work. Um, you know, so we are switching our stance and we want to employ these workers. We will reorganize the, the gig model basically so that we can retain control. Um, and you know, they're, they, what, they, what they want is, the best, is both uh, you know, have their cake and eat it too, as you said. They want to be right. able to control the workforce um, uh, without uh, uh, paying benefits and uh, fulfilling responsibilities as employees. Um, so it's possible. So getting to back to the sort of federal policy question and the uh, wrangling over Biden, you know, there was one private case against Uber that had this as its premise. That case mm -hmm. was kicked to arbitration through, you know, overreading of the mandatory arbitration clauses. So, you know, yet another uh, uh, atrocity that's gone on in terms of labor rights. And it lost an arbitration uh, uh, in that, you know, there was the potential to basically declare uh, Uber's price fixing across all of its uh, drivers to be an antitrust violation. That did not happen. What were the grounds uh, on which they ended up losing? Uh, you know, actually, I have not read any opinion that came out, and that may be because it's by nature of arbitration uh, private. Um, private. So yeah. I heard something about basically the judge agreeing with the economics of the case, but saying, I'm not going to be the one, not the judge, it's the arbitrator, you know, saying, I'm not going to be the one to, through one arbitration ruling, basically dismantle Uber's business model. So I rule for Uber. It's kind of a, a total cop out. I, I mean, I don't that know is. if that's exactly what happened, but I did hear something like that. Um, yeah. So the mandatory arbitration thing, you know, that is not faced by a public enforcer. So you could see, uh, 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 you know, some public enforcement agency, be it a federal DOJ or FTC, the the agencies that prosecute the antitrust laws, um, uh, bringing a case. I mean, it's possible. So this is where you might get a kind of duel within a, a Biden administration, where on the one hand there's an agency that wants to bring federal third category, and on the other hand there's an agency that wants to challenge the gig economy through antitrust uh, mm -hmm. and. You know, that could be an interesting way of playing out. I mean, the problem is antitrust is a uh, highly judicial focused policy apparatus, like the way the policy is made is almost completely through cases in which they're brought in the federal judiciary. And as we all know, the federal judiciary has now been stacked full of like 23 year old federal society ghouls, um, yeah. inc <laughs> you know, including the, the Supreme Court. So, uh, you know, a, an ambitious case that does 
you know, probably conflict with existing case law on the gig economy. So require a judge to overturn, you know, bad pro-defendant rulings and antitrust, you know, that could get overruled all the way up to the Supreme Court. Right. That's a big problem. The other thing that I think is probably legally attractive to at least some people, I, I mean, for good reason, I don't mean to, to put it in uh, derogatory terms like that, is the idea of doing a competition rule. So that is a, you know, the, the federal government passes administrative rules as agencies are empowered to do by legislation. Um, and then those rules have the force of law unless they conflict with the law. So they can be challenged and struck down by the judiciary saying that this rule is inconsistent with the legislation that uh, granted the power to, to legislate, or sorry, to, to, to make rules to the agency. Um, but in general, the case, at least to date, the case law is very is very favorable on that. So an agency can make a rule, and the terms in which it can be struck down by the judiciary are are weaker than has been the case in antitrust. Let's just say that to date. Now, antitrust is not an area where we have that much administrative law. There's the merger guidelines, and there's a question of whether those have the force of administrative law. So count as a rule in this uh, in this schematization. Um, but we do not have uh, other competition rules for coming. It would be the FTC in this case. The DOJ does not have the power to make rules. I don't believe so. Um, you know, that one route is not just an antitrust suit against a gig economy platform for all of the things that I've enumerated as being potential antitrust violations. It's also a rule passed through the FTC, so they get to vote. You know that will be a majority Democratic agency once Biden takes over. Um, you know they will vote on a rule. Um, that will have the force of law unless uh, the judiciary decides it conflicts with the Sherman Act, and the Sherman Act is very vague. Um, so they uh, now, you know, there's lots of bad case law uh, under the Sherman Act, so they could decide it conflicts with their own prior case law. Uh, that's one route, and then the other big route is as one thing that the Supreme Court people have been talking about is the idea that this what's called agency deference, which is um, the federal judiciary's uh, deference to expert agencies in formulating rules. So that that's the judicial precedent that basically makes rulemaking a uh, a um, powerful agency of government, like it's it's an arm of government exactly because uh, the judiciary has said uh, you know we have limited say on that subject as opposed to total say as it is with antitrust. They may overturn that. Uh, you know, uh, Scalia was uh, a notoriously like a conservative who favored that. Um, he's been replaced by a bunch of conservatives who disfavor that. And we're in the world where the judiciary is going to be claiming as much power for themselves as possible um, because, you know, that's the only way that the Republican, you know, it's an uh, inherently minoritarian uh, political movement. Um, you know, they're going to want and any place out there where the judiciary has, you know, forsworn uh, discretion over uh, policy, especially economic policy, uh, in favor of any other agency that is now under the present circumstances controlled by Democrats, the judiciary is going to overturn that and, uh, you know, sort of appropriate that power that it had previously allowed to be in somebody else's hands to itself. You could strike down a competition rule against the gig platforms, both because it conflicts with existing case law in the Sherman Act and because it reflects uh, excessive use of uh, the power that was granted to the FTC to make policy on competition matters as embodied in the, feder in the federal trade. Commission Act. You know, I'm curious, what do you think and to what end do we end up trying to litigate and restructure the gig economy? I mean, obviously you want to restructure it in a way where the labor standards are fair and it's dignified and decent work. But on the other hand, when it comes to these firms uh, that seem to exist only in models that allow for large scale you know, operation at regional global levels, does that mean that if we adhere to or if we implement antitrust 
uh, tools and if we implement you know labor like fair labor regulation that we're going to be trying to restructure them as localized entities as worker-owned entities i mean is there a sort of structure that antitrust and labor in idealized forms would in would force gig economy platforms to end up being especially uber or is it more like using these tools would just actually open them up to any other form than what they are now, which is like this very complex arbitrage scheme, you know, for uh, <laughs> investors. Yeah, I think the way that they are set up now, as you just said, is basically a way that conforms itself to the gigantic loopholes that have been cut in both labor and antitrust law. And so that, you know, given that they're operating basically a you know national or international taxi network outside taxi regulation, outside labor law, outside antitrust, makes it a gigantic arbitrage opportunity and thus an attractive uh, investment as, you know, it's basically a legal play. It's like, uh, you know, I'll invest in this thing because it has legal immunity, therefore its profits will be higher, therefore it's a good investment. Um, so you're saying, you know, what are the sort of alternative ways that uh, the gig economy could be um, constructed? I mean, I am of the opinion that there's nothing in particularly technologically innovative about uh, the gig economy. Um, you know, that is a huge uh, sort of talking point that its partisans use that, you know, these technical innovations that have our logo slapped on them uh, wouldn't be available to you if we had an alternative regulatory regime. You know, that's just not true. Like we have had perfect, yeah, <laughs> yeah. we've had perfectly uh, innovative firms that have a very different business structure, including work, uh, ones that are worker owned. Um, there are plenty of firms both here and uh, in the United States and overseas that are uh, state owned. Um, you know, there's th just this idea that like capitalistic control of economic production is the only type of structure of economic production and anything else is, uh, you know, deviation from uh, sort of efficient production like that that is just a deeply ideological ideologically constructed uh, and i would say uh, pernicious uh, mindset and it's not i have encountered that throughout my uh, professional life in the economics yeah, profession with its, <laughs> with, it, with its uh you know assumptions about how uh, economic production takes place you know frankly you also find that uh that view on the left um there's a kind of weird confluence um, between Marxist the teleological theories of the history of economic production and neoclassical ones like Chicago school ones where it's something like you know it's inevitable that firms get bigger and that production scales uh, over time that uh, larger and uh, more coordinated more more like unitarily coordinated production entities are more efficient than than smaller ones and they will come to dominate the economy and so then the question is only sort of who owns these unitary directed entities that control the whole economy you know we can have a debate about optimal policy I think once you get to that level of distraction it's a little hard to have that debate um, but it's just false as a uh, historical as a theory of history History. I mean, there's this lady at the University of Maryland who's the head of some Koch Brothers Institute there who made this statement uh, at a conference oh, no. a few years ago. That was like, that was like, you know, we've known for ten thousand years that capitalism is the source what? of, of, uh, of economic pr prosperity. Um, you know, and it's like, and it's like, you know, you know, um, you know, that kind of statement just like strikes you as ridiculous. But it's not other than the ten thousand years and uh, the statement you know, capitalism, there's, you know, a flavor of that kind of idea behind uh, teleological Marxist theories of history that I think have gotten in the way of the left uh, participating fruitfully in debates over, say, how the gig economy could be organized. Because as my colleague, Cendric Paul has pointed out, you know, there's plenty of ways that 
um, workers have been undermined by forcing them to to work to work in some sort of organization that's uh, you know large and unitary and top down. Um, you know they've also been undermined by being fissured from that. So this whole idea of the fissured workplace is like right. uh, you know we're going to kind of at least legally distance workers from the locus of production, and that's how we'll deny them their rights. And you know both of those things can and do happen. They're all part of the uh, structure of economic production. They're all just a matter of contested public debate. Although as we've seen with, with Prop 22, you know the aim of these companies is to remove any of the consequential decisions from public discretion and to essentially get everyone to agree on taking their side behind closed doors and never have that consequential issue you know, put, put up for public debate. We all agree on, on, on TMK that the real innovation here is the billions of dollars of venture capital that's just funneled yeah. into these organizations. Yeah. Right? It's nothing technological. It's nothing organizational right. about yeah. them. It right. really I mean, it's shout out to Uber. I was going to say shout out to Uber for burning $23.5 billion of other investors' money. That's innovation, you know? dude. Yeah. That's yeah, but on the other, I mean, but, uh, you know, so that that's true. Uh, you know, that huge pile of cash that they can use to buy a, an election or Right. Or by officials or whatever, you know, makes the company way more valuable. So, you know, it, yes, it is uh, definitely burning through cash on a paper basis. On the other hand, in the aftermath of Prop 22, which cost them, you know, 200 plus million dollars, their market cap went up by like 10 billion dollars. So, yeah. you know, yeah. just yeah, if Uber you're thinking about a, like return on capital for it was its like 19,000 percent for Uber, yeah. 19,000 <laughs> yeah. percent return. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so that. Uh, uh, you know, right there. I mean, it doesn't have to be making a, an accounting profit in order to return mm-hmm. enormously for its investors uh, just through that that mechanism. And and you know, essentially, what the investors are putting in there is, you know, that this company is the one that. Uh, has the ear of all of the elected officials and can bulldoze their way through uh, any opposition that would arise in the political sphere. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, if I'm an investor, you know, wondering where to stash my money, if I'm the Saudi royal family who wants to uh, divest mice yeah. and, uh, um, uh, you know, diversify out oil. of oil, um, you know, that's definitely where I'm going to put my money because, you know, that's mm-hmm. like, uh, money printing press, basically. We'll, we'll see where it goes. You know, it's possible that even despite this, Uber will go out of business if, uh, you know, any of these people decide that they don't want to keep, uh, you know, kind of shoveling money in. But, you know, now, I mean, this will certainly give them another lease on life. And if, if they were facing any pressure from investors at all, which I, you know, yeah. I, I would doubt, um, you know, now they'll easily be able to go back to the investors and say, like, you know, just shovel a little bit more in and then we're home free because we'll be able to nationalize this. Who did you exploit today? Who did I exploit? Hmm, I don't think I did yet. But are you? Um, yeah, probably sometime today. I think that speaks as well uh, to the difficulty that, uh, you know, the, the left in general, but even the, the kind of Biden-Harris administration will face in trying to do something like uh, regulate these companies in, in large part because it's not only that, you know, that huge jump in Uber and Lyft's share pricing and, and, and you know, all, all, you know, the $10 billion that they got, you know, after that, after the yes on Prop 22. But, you know, as the, as the, the Financial Times reported very, very recently, essentially all the gains in the S&P 500 index this year have come from um, the five big tech companies, you know, adding around $12.4 trillion to their combined market cap. Um, and so that's, you know, that that's not Uber and Lyft, that's uh, Microsoft, that's Facebook, that's Alphabet, that's Amazon, um, Apple, you know, those are the five pig. And so, you know, $12.4 trillion. And, you know, the, the value of those five tech companies um, 
increased more than $700 billion um, since election day. So like three days after election day, they saw a huge uh, jump in their valuation. Um, and on one hand, I mean, this, you know, we could take this as a sign to come that the, that the political order is going to have a really difficult time regulating what seems to be the economic order, right? Especially as they're trying to craft policy to get out of a, a pandemic-induced depression, um, grow the economy, right? And so if, if you're looking at just in, in sheer terms of like macroeconomics and, and, and what the market is choosing, what Wall, how Wall Street is voting. Um, then it looks like the tech sector. Well, that's the engine of that's the engine of growth right there. Um, and anything that we do to uh, pump the brakes on that engine is pumping the brakes on the American economy. Yeah, well, I mean, for one thing, all of those companies are owned by like a tiny number of people who benefits everything. So what we saw with Prop 22 is a reduction in labor standards for uh, you know tens of thousands of ordinary people in California and a huge increase in wealth for the Saudi royal family. Um, you know, so right. to say that their increase, those companies' increase in market cap is the engine of the American economy is uh, you know overlooking exactly who it is who benefits when that market cap goes up. And I would just say, you know, my reaction to to uh, the litany that you just read off is like we've been here before. So in the progressive era, there's basically uh, an attempt, a sort of political attempt to um, rein in corporate control of the the economy, um, which meant the sort of national corporations that were set up by Wall Street um, that basically were were seen as a political threat uh, by the end of the 19th century, um, had kind of, through politics, extricated themselves from any potential for uh, political uh, accountability or political, you know, shared governance in a in a political economic sense um, by the end of the progressive era. And that's kind of where we are now, where the, the these uh, companies just don't see themselves as accountable to the political system, you know, because like a bunch of uh, California elected officials put their ass on the line on AB5 and like they beat them, you know, so it's like, okay, well, you know, $2,200 million, that's nothing to us. You know, anybody who tries to come after us, we will crush them. The only source of accountability uh, uh, on their total discretion is one another. So there are certain instances where Uber has uh, pissed off Apple and, you know, risked getting locked out of the uh, app store. And then they go groveling on hands and knees to, you know, to be allowed to conduct business from the person who gets to decide whether they conduct business, which is Tim Cook, not the president of the United States, not anybody in uh, in a position of elected and, and democratic uh, accountability. You know, and then, uh, you know, so sometimes they hold each other accountable, sometimes they absolutely don't. So in the antitrust case that the Trump DOJ filed against uh, Google, you know, the whole premise of it is basically that they bought Apple's cooperation in their search monopoly. So, you know, Uber con- or uh, Apple controls, you know, I don't know what it is, 20, 25% of of, uh, of the mobile market in the United States, uh, Google's uh, Android phones are the other uh, share of the market. So obviously, Google can um, ensure that uh, search or that its search is the default on on the phones that it controls. On the Apple ones, they basically just paid Apple to ensure that Google search is the default there. Now they have 100% market share in search on mobile. You know, there's elements of that between Facebook and Spotify. You know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing uh, is fairly uh, standard and, you know, certainly offers nothing to uh, the vast public. So we're just sort of left waiting for scraps to be <laughs> dropped by right. uh, by the goodwill of the people who actually control the economy. Our benevolent <laughs> tech lords. Tech Our benevolent lords. overlords, yeah. Right, so who, who are, <laughs> if they're accountable to anybody, accountable to, again, the royal family of Saudi Arabia. You need this to wipe your hands, you got blood on it. 
I've been excited by seeing like the interest that you know Democratic officials have at least shown in antitrust or saying it out loud. You know, versus like the Obama era, <laughs> where uh, yeah. the, you know they were friend their best friends were the you know the, these monopolists. And you know, I, I seeing either the integration of like Lena Khan's work into the House Judiciary, the House subcommittees uh, interested in asking these these questions. Um, to seeing like, you know, candidates talk about it, but do you feel that antitrust is being properly aimed at uh, the questions around? Is Are there concerns you have maybe about, you know, the focus or overlook, um, whether it's like, you know, like you said, even though antitrust and labor inevitably collide, there may be, I see sometimes like a reluctance to acknowledge that, or maybe not an awareness that they, you know, collide in those ways. Um, like a good example is, uh, Zephyr Teach Out's book, which opens with a chapter on, you know, chicken farming and the way in which the monopolization there leads to very dire labor consequences. And even though we've known for a long time, that's how the chicken farming industry is. It's never been spoken about truly in terms of like antitrust is also a labor issue. It's a concern yeah. about the their rights. Yeah, well, so what she calls chickenization is uh, basically mm -hmm. the gig economy, except in the chicken farming context. So, right. you know, these are like pl not notionally independent uh, producers who are nonetheless under the total control of a dominant, you know, chicken company. And that is basically the, the exactly the same setup as is the case in the gig economy. And I think both are, are susceptible to the antitrust critique. Um, we'll see if it goes anywhere. Um, but I think it's a powerful argument and a correct one in terms of the economics. As you say, there was this House Antitrust Subcommittee report, you know, one of the, uh, I would say, signal accomplishments of the Dem-controlled 116th Congress in the House of Representatives. Um, it reflects a great deal of uh, uh, Lena's input and scholarship, and uh, that has now kind of attained the status of the left pole of the antitrust debate at the federal level. Um, so what you're going to see from Biden uh, in terms of appointments and their stated policies is going to triangulate between that report and nothing. And, and uh, yeah. you know, again, again, that's a, a oh, yeah, uh, that one pointed triangle. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, you know, it's a, definitely an important effort and there will be a attempt to, you know, sort of see it, it lives on and gets embodied in policy through uh, legislation through enforcement actions, like for example, I would be surprised if the if the Biden DOJ you know gives up on the uh, Google antitrust case. Like it's you know at least one thing you could say about the Trump administration is like they've set that out, so it, it would be a pretty big deal for Biden to kind of be like, yeah, no, we're not doing this anymore. So then, so you know, but he'll put people in uh, at the FTC and uh, DOJ that will essentially you know be the kind of mirror image of the internal debate that I referred to earlier in labor, where you've got some people from the kind of, you know, antitrust. I mean, it's a, it's a little bit different because in the labor sphere, as I characterize it, you've got the sort of AFL, the, what we consider like traditional old labor being on the correct side of that particular battle, in my opinion. In antitrust, you know, the, all the Obama retreads will be up for these appointments. You know, they, they're the ones who let these tech companies become what they are and then have taken lobbying money from them after they left government, they're going to be itching to come back. And then there's some new blood and, you know, we'll see where the appointments shake out as to who gets what, where, and what, what agencies uh, take up. I do think, you know, so, so I, it seems like you're alluding to the fact that the House Antitrust Subcommittee report doesn't really talk about the gig economy. There's not that much about labor in yeah. there, you know, so there may be, have been a jurisdictional issue there. It's not a labor committee. Uh, mm -hmm. The idea that there's an intersection between antitrust and labor is a fairly new idea, uh, although it be as I've tried to point out, it's it's actually an old one, um, you know, and, and Centric has done the same. Even despite that, there will 
I mean, I, I'm fingers crossed. The optimistic take would be that somewhere in a federal administration or from a state enforcer or something or a, or a private class action, maybe a, one that is that can't be arbitrated like the one in New York, um, you know, there will be a equivalent like comprehensive antitrust challenge to the gig platforms of the kind that are outlined in that report to the other tech firms. We'll see, we'll see where that comes from. I mean, I could be, you know, as I said, that's the optimistic thing. So there's not, it's not assured that that's going to happen, but I just, cause it's not in the report. I don't think that that means it won't happen. Let me just say, say that, you know, with all this kind of buzz now and, and kind of resurgent interest in antitrust, one of the things that has always stuck with me is I'm, I mean, on one hand, the proponents of it and the things that they focus on, right. Which tend to be uh, things around like, uh, competition and price discrimination. That's what they're really focusing on. I've, I've been reticent to kind of throw my hat in the ring uh, around antitrust in large part because it, it's it's not clear to me and maybe, and I'm hoping you can make it a little clear, is how do we make something like antitrust into a uh, non-reformist reform, right? Yeah. So, uh, uh-huh. you know, a lot of the the, the kind of so-called progressives who um, support this are, you know, they're, they're always drawn to these incremental salves and compromises <laughs> with capital. Um, and, and, you know, not because that's all that we can achieve, but importantly, because I think that's all they truly want, right? And, <laughs> and uh, I, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm going to name names. I, I'm thinking in particular of people like um, Matt Stoller and the Open Markets Institute, right, uh, who I think have this rose-colored kind of nostalgia for a time that didn't actually exist how they imagine it did, um, and for policies that didn't actually work how they assert it will. But they also seem to be, you know, that there's been kind of a speculation that, you know, Matt Stoller is going to be one of the leading um, kind of economic thinkers uh, setting Biden's uh, uh, economic policy agenda, right? So it's like, these are also the kind of leading lights around this movement. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to answer there. Uh, first of all, Matt Seller no longer works at the Open Markets Institute uh, for good reason. Um, he, he has his own organization. Uh, and I think he has done a lot of damage, to be totally frank, to the uh, antitrust uh, debate exactly for the reasons that you name. Um, so there's a couple of, you know, leaving that aside, you know, he wrote this book that has a lot of history in it. I don't think it's very good history. Um, as you're saying that it sort of harks back to a time uh, that never really existed or where antitrust, where he's saying antitrust is the cause of all of these wonderful things and then we lost it. Uh, you know, that's not uh, an accurate history of antitrust or of the broader history he's telling. Um, I do. I mean, I would say, you know, this is going to kind of undermine my overall point because I want to speak to the way in which antitrust really is a important agenda item and, and uh, for the left and should be something that the left sees as uh, has an affinity for rather than an allergy to, as I think has unfortunately grown up in some uh, circumstances. And I just insofar as antitrust has been successful, it is as reformist in a positive sense. So I my my historical claim is. I was earlier kind of vaguely alluding to the fact that antitrust ultimately was not able to tame corporate power in the progressive era, kind of went away, was a dead letter for 20 years. It came back at the end of the New Deal, um, basically because the Roosevelt administration's other mechanisms for regulating non-regulated corporations, so like broad manufacturing industry outside the context where there's sector-specific regulation, they turned to antitrust and that turned out to be successful through uh, basically a political and elite process that led to you know very uh, strong enforcement 
decisions at the Supreme Court in the 1940s, some more legislation, basically the one case that the government lost at the Supreme Court in the 40s, uh, the government, the, the Congress was like, no, 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 Supreme Court, you did it wrong. We're passing a law that says we were right. So like more enforcement, um, you know, so between that interplay of the branches, it ended up being bipartisan. That is, there was a, an Eisenhower administration effort to kind of regularize the broad body of activist case law that had developed between 1938 and when the Eisenhower administration took over, that effort was like favorable, broadly favorable to uh, what the overall impetus was. So this became a uh, policy area where there was essentially three branch bipartisan uh, agreement for a time. So that is fundamentally reformist. I don't want to say that this is like secretly radical. I think part of uh, Stoller's historical error is in lifting up that which should be understood as what it was, which was a compromise within a political system that was durable, at least for a time, and had buy-in. You know, the the true expression of the American people's desire to be independent and to compete and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, that's just not an accurate history. Okay, it's so let me- like Jeffersonian, human- Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you could, say, you could say that sort of like tinge to antitrust hat is some of the reason why the political compromise, like, aggressive antitrust enforcement regime that ultimately got this bipartisan support in three branch consensus, like maybe at some level it was like, oh, this is, you know, American corporate regulation and like the National Industrial Recovery Act is, you know, bad socialism from Europe. Um, you know, so like that for that reason, we'll prefer antitrust. I mean, maybe that that was at play, but it's just, you know, the idea that there's like a continuous history of the Jeffersonian small farmer that, you know, has, you know, been expressed through the American political system until it was evilly shut down by the sellout Democrats of the 1970s and the Chicago School of Economics. You know, that that's as bad of a history as the, you know, everything leads to um, the consolidation and increasing returns to scale that I previously criticized as coming from both the neoclassical Chicago people and the kind of Mar Marxist teleology. All right, so why should the left actually like antitrust, sweeping aside all of that? I think the gig economy, to, you know, to kind of circle back to that, it, brings out the issues that make it a progressive uh, priority, which is it contests control over economic production um, and the allocation of power. At, at, so uh, I use that broad phrase, what my colleague Cedric calls coordination rights. So the ability to uh, direct economic production across firm boundaries or across individual boundaries, you know, antitrust structures that. So she, it has what she calls the firm exemption, which is that if, if you, you know, and any economic activity that takes place within the legal construct of the firm, which is an, a corporation created by instrument of state law, it's obviously a legal structure that could be modified. Anything that happens within those walls is immune from antitrust and anything, and, and you know, in order to be, to implicate antitrust, it has to extend across the border of, of the firm. You know, that is in itself is structuring economic activity. And, you know, so if the firm, you know, so then we have different types of firms, but suppose, you know, it's a capitalistic firm where you've got management that is responsive to uh, shareholders as represented on its board and, uh, you know, management employees, which is to say makes subservient a whole swath of workers, you know, that kind of capitalistic control is favored by antitrust firm exemption. You could modify that. So antitrust could prefer horizontal organizations of workers or producers collaborating with each other, co-ops, uh, worker-owned firms of various kinds, um, instead of the top-down management that is embodied in the capitalistic control of economic production through the instrument of the firm that is uh, inherently made contingent by the operation of antitrust. Um, and so, and the gig, as I said, the gig economy really uh, exemplifies this because there you have the, the legal structure is uh, not including uh, the workers in, in the firm. 
antitrust means that basically the firm exemption is extended so that it it's not just the legal boundaries of the firm, but what antitrust has thus far construed the economic boundaries to be, which is that, say, Uber drivers are employees for antitrust purposes because they can be told what to do and we're not going to penalize Uber under antitrust. So were there to be a, an ambitious antitrust case that says that the entire gig economy business model is anti-competitive because you've got some powerful dominant entity telling its non-employees what to do and directing their work, it's like fixing prices and so on. Were that, were that case to be successful, what that would imply is a contract of the uh, of antitrust firm exemption so that the sphere of control of the capitalists who control Uber and direct all of its workers is less comprehensive as to uh, how the um, how the platform works and the overall economy um, uh, you know in, the, in this case the like the ride-sharing industry the taxi industry you know it would reallocate power. I mean, that's the fundamental fact. It would take power mm -hmm. away from the CEO of Uber and grant it to Uber's drivers. That's what that antitrust case would accomplish. So if you are a leftist or progressive who thinks that workers should have more power, an antitrust case that would reallocate power from the CEO of Uber to its workers is something that you should like. That's my basic pitch. Yeah, no, I, I really like that way of framing it. I want to put a fine point on that for, for the listeners as well is that I, I think that's exactly how we should be understanding the power of antitrust is not as this way of reallocating power between CEOs of firms, right? Which is how it's often kind of cast. It's like we yeah. need, um, you know, Dara at Uber to give some of his power to um, five other uh, Uber copycats that are smaller, right? But but it's about this. <laughs> reallocating power from capital to labor through antitrust. Yes. And I would say, I mean, just to sort of speak directly about employment as this as the context here, like, uh, you know, you have this problem in antitrust or the view of antitrust is it's promoting competition. Um, and I don't agree that it has accomplished that, but I also don't agree that that's what its aim is. You know, so the fact that the CEO of Uber gets to control and direct the activities on the job of all of these hundreds of thousands of drivers uh, means that he faces no competition in the market for his own drivers, whereas those drivers are in competition with each other. So when you say like, you know, suppose I, I would, this is not how I would suspect an Uber antitrust case to play out, but suppose it did play out where the remedy was a breakup of Uber into five different companies that had the same business model. That's not a good outcome because the problem with Uber is the imbalance of power and the control that the platform directs over its workers. But that at least would be a world in which the CEO of Uber does have less power and there's more competition between him and his fellow CEOs and less competition among the drivers. Now, plenty of the driver, you know, the, the, one of the aspects of the gig economy platform business model is that they, even though they say that the drivers are multi-homing, they in fact impose restraints. I mean, that's very hard for the drivers to multi-home, at least within any one shift. So, you know, breaking up Uber, but not getting rid of that would mean that, you know, basically each one of the subsidiary Ubers has its own little walled garden, its own equally exploitative business model vis-a-vis -vis its own um, workers. That is not a, a successful remedy to the problem of Uber. Right. A, a, yeah. An antitrust remedy for Uber that doesn't break it up, but does vastly limit the degree of control that uh, the platform is able to exercise over drivers, even if there is only one or two platforms or whatever in the aftermath of that case, that's a much more successful remedy. But the, you know, the basic point is that you're going after the fact that the total control and domination by the CEO means competition among the workers. You sort of mm -hmm. shift the balance so that there's more competition at the platform level among the CEO and less competition on the part of the workers. That enhances the workers' uh, power and standing vis-a-vis -vis the, the platform and the labor market in general. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, re I really like that. And I mean, that, that sounds like such a more compelling argument for antitrust and, and, and the direction that we need to 
be working to push um, this this move and push the kind of Biden administration towards understanding it in, in that term. Um, I know that we're we're kind of coming now to the to the end of the episode, but since since we have you on, we've spoken a lot about kind of Proposition Twenty Two and and how that what that kind of portends for. Um, this, you know, this question of what comes next with the new administration, with, uh, you know, not only the new administration, but in the kind of aftermath of a world where, um, you know, Uber and, and Lyft and, the, and these gig companies are now um, quite vocally and full-throatedly saying that they are going to be loudly advocating for Proposition 22s in, in the other 49 states um, and at a federal level. I, I think we've covered a lot on that, but since we have you here, Marshall, I also want to kind of end the episode talking about another really important policy uh, agenda, uh, policy topic that I don't think has uh, been covered very, very much. It hasn't gotten a lot of attention in the same way that other other aspects of what comes next has. And that's largely around um, a lot of the great work that you've done uh, on like higher education finance. And I think that's, inc- I, I think that is uh, intimately connected to these questions of, of, of labor, of labor power, of the position of people within markets, um, but also to these questions of, uh, you know, uh, of precarious and immiserated um, labor uh, in the sense that like, you know, it, it's, it's really difficult to say that someone is not in a precarious and impoverished situation um, when they do all the work to go get uh, a university degree because now that's the default and everyone tells you that's what you need, but not only an undergraduate degree, but a master's degree, a graduate degree, um, and a then you're saddled with, yeah, uh, right, and, you, and then you're saddled with 50,000, 100,000 or more in debt, right, and, 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 and you never escape that. Um, so what, I mean, what, I guess the, the two-part question of what comes next with higher education finance under a Biden administration and what needs to come next? Yeah, so there is currently this debate about whether student debt should be canceled. I would say it's basically the only thing that I'm cautiously optimistic about in a Biden administration. So I've laid out these other areas where mm. there will be a fight and my pessimistic side says the good, good guys are going to lose that fight. In higher ed and specifically on student debt cancellation, that's where I would be most sanguine that a good outcome will actually happen. Um, That's in large part because a sort of legal uh, maneuver to uh, cancel student debt via executive action has been put down. So it does not require um, an act of Congress and that makes it a lot easier to do politically. Um, So I hope they do push on that. it's kind of weird because you know I've worked on student debt and student debt cancellation for a number of years. I was one of the earliest people to put cancellation on the table as a, a viable policy option that was sort of more farther than a lot of the, the even the progressive higher ed policy wonks were willing to go back when we first proposed it. And now it's like the thing that might actually happen. You know, one of the reasons why it was put forward was the political judgment that there was all this talk of free college that offers something to future students and certainly something that people who currently have student debt wish they had had. Um, but you know, politically, there's just a huge constituency that that is not benefited by free college. So there has to be something in it for them. Now it seems like that's the one thing that might actually happen. The free college doesn't look like it's uh, viable. There's yeah. huge opposition to that um, among uh, Democrats on Capitol Hill. Um, and so it's like the, the sole sort of area for pushing uh, positive progressive policy is through this administrative student debt cancellation. So then the debate becomes, well, just how much and when and, and who. Um, and I think you know some of that has been uh, 
uh, harmful and pernicious to get back to this dynamic where the dimensions of racial and economic justice are put in opposition to one another. There's a uh, unfortunate, uh, I would say factually false, but also politically misguided attempt to say that too much student debt cancellation would increase racial inequality. So it's, while it's true that student debt is much disproportionately held by people of color, um, you know, the view is, well, uh, you know, the, the higher amounts of student debt are held by white people. And so if we forgive all the student debt, then we're helping those people at the expense of the people of color. So first of all, it's, it's sort of logically incoherent because white people still having student debt doesn't benefit black people. But it's also the case that, um, you know, conditional on income, it's black people who have more student debt. So if, you know, the Elizabeth Warren proposal during the primary was $50,000 of student debt cancellation with a means test. So leave aside the means test for now, $50,000 of student debt cancellation cancel for, you know, conditional on income cancels pretty much all white people's debt and leaves intact a lot of black people's debt. And and that's for high, deeply racialized reasons, uh, discrimination in the labor market, meaning that black people have to come to the table with more degrees, therefore more debt, lack, you know, uh, huge disparities in household wealth, meaning that uh, white people's families are in a better position to help them pay for college than uh, 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 black people. And, you know, so there's all manner of reasons for that. And by uh, kind of posing this, the policy question in this way that poses the inconsistency or trade-off between racial and economic justice, again, uh, just seems like a recipe to arbitrarily limit ourselves. So if, the, if, if you know, the one good thing that we can look forward to in a Biden administration is an administrative student debt cancellation, well, you know, why would you not push that as far as, as it goes? Uh, it seems really silly to decide that, you know, actually it's, uh, it would be bad for racial justice justice, um, you know, if, uh, if, if uh, white people had their debt canceled, uh, even though, you know, again, uh, you know, it's black people have way more disproportionate amount of debt. You know, notwithstanding that, if you told me three years ago that $50,000 of student debt cancellation was on the table in a Democratic administration, I would have been very surprised because there's a great deal of opposition to that within a lot of powerful, you know, basically all, uh, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> up until very recently, that is to say, Warren and Sanders's presidential campaigns, pretty much anyone who would have st staffed education department or the relevant policy positions in a Biden administration or any Democratic administration would not have favored student debt cancellation. So it's really hard to imagine them putting it into effect. And maybe still is. I mean, there's a real risk that this has kind of come out in terms of formulating policy, come in from left field, all the people who view this as their job to decide on what counts as a reasonable, uh, serious higher education policy had no say in this, they've been poo-pooing it. So if they're the people in the responsible positions, you know, they're not going to have a lot of career skin in the game on making sure it happens. Now, okay. all of the, the fact that it's like might be the only good thing that the Biden administration can do might reverse the sort of stasis or, or inertia there, um, you know, because it's like, well, you know, if we don't do, even though this isn't what I wanted to do, if we don't do this, we haven't done it, we, we won't have done anything like so that could push people to action. But, um, you know, it's, it's certainly not assured. It, it would be a huge win if, if that were to happen. I mean, there's even just thinking about the purely economic arguments behind it. It seems like there's yeah. such strong economic behind arguments behind kind of wiping out this debt um, as a as a as a form of stimulus for the economy. Yeah. Also, the experience with the CARES Act. You know, it does seem to me like you know one way in which the Biden administration's economic policy team will be more progressive than the Obama administrations and all the Democratic administrations in living memory is, you know, I, I would strongly believe that they won't care as much about the deficit and uh, balanced budget as uh, Obama's people did and as Democrats have uh, historically performatively done. 
in terms of the pandemic relief, if we get another thing, like the Biden administration will be just sort of pushing that as far as it goes. So there will be obvious political uh, barriers there, but I'm not worried in the way that I'm worried in these other areas that people, you know, that there'll be a fight within the administration. At least my what right. strikes me is, uh, you know, they will want as big of a plan uh, proposal as they can get. Having, they might have work requirements. So, you know, that would be bad. On the other hand, we have the, the CARES Act experience of, you know, just basically writing checks to people and that being enormously politically successful and economically successful. And I think that might kind of put wind in the sails of student debt cancellation, as you say, as a macroeconomic stimulus measure, um, you know, and, and all of the people who are sort of saying, well, that's not equitable because, you know, what about the people who don't have student debt and, you know, uh, you know that, that this is an elite uh, payoff of elites or something like that. That kind of argument won't have the type of bite that they thought it was going to have when they decided to go with that as their main sort of talking point in opposition. Do you feel a sense of optimism, not optimism, when you look at, (laughs) when you look at the Biden-Harris administration, are you hopeful or do you have in mind areas where you think, hey, like we can actually make gains here besides student debt and hopefully some of the labor and antitrust questions? Or do you feel that it's going to have to be like a very vicious uphill battle given the staffing and some of the ideological commitments they have? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a very vicious uphill battle. Any hope that I would have had that the Democratic Party machinery would assimilate uh, any of the suggestions that are being made by the left and that gained uh, popular buy-in in the Sanders's two presidential campaigns and just the general public debate. You know, they, they are definitely not they have not, I mean, other than, I guess, the small issue of student debt cancellation in the grand scheme of things relative to all of these other uh, proposals that are out there, you know, the Democratic Party is not <laughs> enthusiastic about them. Their their view is yeah. the left has to be excluded from power. The left's priorities um, are not priorities that we want to bring in uh, to the party um, and be anything that we would run on, you know, but so between that uh, kind of inherent allergy that a lot of the people who are who will be in that administration have and the reality of a congress that the administration is not going to control in a hostile judiciary is just there's going to be you know there's just all of these um uh, very strong political forces are piled up against anything good happening so that probably means that good things won't happen you know i think we have to proceed we assuming we referring to the left on the you know on the assumption that um you know these people have to be forced to do anything good it's not it doesn't come down to sort of like what do they really believe what are their like true part political priorities in their heart of hearts those those questions are irrelevant because they they refer to you know like in philosophical terms they refer to you know not anything that actually exists you know right. there's a a a uh a balance of power in the policymaking apparatus. The left doesn't have very much of it. And, uh, you know, if we want to push our priorities, it's going to require an outside organization and not fighting the fight in the way that these people are used to defending themselves. And it, I mean, it's been shown that that can be done. Like on student debt cancellation, all of these people hated it when we first proposed it. And now at least it's not out of the question that they'll actually do it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think student debt policy is like in of itself a huge is a light you know like to go from uh people mocking the idea like you know during occupy wall street of like a debt jubilee or even graber's work on how debt jubilees were like normal in human history and it's only recently that they've they've uh you know the capitalists are like why the fuck would you want to get rid of your debt (laughs) you know yeah well it's good for the capitalists that we're all we all have to do, do what they say if we're gonna you know it's it's a kind of constant source of power that they wield and so that's exactly why debt is uh, you know, always a potent political 
weapon and, and political in the sense of not just like the formal political system, but it's like a way of exercising control over the economy. God, grow to love your your ball and chain. You know, it's, yeah, it's, there we that, go. That's what's keeping you grounded yeah. to the earth. You know, so you don't throw the way. No, I mean we've got you know very well-known reactionary economists basically saying that like students who go to a university without debt are too free and they'll major oh, in things that are economically useful. And so we need to use the debt to discipline them to make them into good workers that will do what we, you know, economists tell them to. And that point of view, I mean, when that, as I'm speaking of James Buchanan, the guy that uh, Nancy McLean's book, uh, Democracy and Change, is about, you know, when he espoused that, he sounded like a total crank, and he was a crank, and that basically yes. <laughs> parties, both parties' uh, uh, policy vis-a-vis higher education and student debt. Yeah, and now it's becoming the mainstream, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great way to, to end it. I really like, right. you know, especially ending it on that point that what comes next is that we have to force them to do good, right? We cannot expect uh, that they will in the, their heart of hearts. Uh, yeah, there's no, there's, there's no agency there that like really wants to do what the left would want or what progressives want yeah. or what's good for the public. They're interested in their lobbying job after they're in office. That's it. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, there's there's already been this talk of, oh, is Biden going to be the next FDR or, or, or maybe the next LBJ? Um, but I think even if, even if we take that at face value, uh, we also have to remember what that famous line from FDR, you know, talking to the activists saying, you know, I want to do it, but you have to make me do it. Yep. Right. So even even then the great the great, you know, leader that all these all these progressive look back to and want to to replicate, um, even then that recognition that um, I won't do it unless you make me do it. And I think that's the that's the message moving forward um, for Biden Harris administration. Yeah. So on that note, thanks, Marshall. Is there anything you want to plug? I mean, I will say your your Twitter account, Econ Marshall, Econ underscore Marshall, is fantastic. Um, also, always- please check it out because of the long running bit that pops up every now and then about the Cato Institute and the <laughs> origin of its fucking name and how much they rage against <laughs> against even mentioning. Yeah. That's been one of my all time most successful trolls, and I have to credit it to Senjukta. She's the one who. I mean, I, I used to make that joke, but like she's the one who really set them off you know so That's they don't sad. like the fact they don't like it when you point out that they're named after a slave owner that's all i like sad. to imagine that all <laughs> of the people who get mad about it are just like different versions of the person who highlighted that book on classical western philosophy that i found in my basement <laughs> <laughs> where they highlighted like <laughs> we gotta i'm yeah. i have been finding stuff in it i'll share it oh online. god oh i i that is what i am looking forward to most of all so that sounds great we have to we have to have like a reading group for the highlights yeah. in that <laughs> yes yes yeah for <laughs> listeners uh i found a book in uh my basement i found a bunch of books uh from some kids Institute, who a ghoul who moved out, presumably. Um, and one of them was like hot, had very weird highlight, like underlining and highlighting and hearts around passages talking about selling like uh losers of a war into slavery and like the <laughs> necessity of like murdering your enemies and like all this really weird libertarian and cap shit that is like, of course, what they would believe in and take joy in. <laughs> Oh man, so beautiful. Yeah, so f- follow follow Marshall on Twitter for sure. Is there anything else you want to plug before we before we leave out? No, not in particular. I have a website, marshallsteinbaum.org, if you really want to read my academic writings and various policy related stuff. It's all linked there. Um, 
So, and all the academics that listen to TMK should read that and cite it in all of your work. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Lots of citations. Yep. (laughs) Except, except my submissions to journals. Yes. Absolutely. Exactly. So, all right. Well, thank you again, uh, Marshall. This has been really great, and uh, we will see you all later. When the revolution comes, where will you hide? Under my bed. Under my bed. You disgust me. Way. Don't you know Jesse Mac away?